I charge a car? Can I charge it in the rain? How far can I drive? Electric car? What's a power grid? Is V2G possible? What is V2G? Do I get free parking for my EV? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Electric Avenue, a podcast about the electric mobility revolution and the new energy economy, especially seen from out here in Central and Eastern Europe. I'm your host, Aaron Fishbone, Communications Director at electric vehicle charging services company Greenway, based here in Bratislava, Slovakia. And I'm sitting here with Greenway's co-founder, Peter Body. Hello. Hi. Happy to be here again. The last two weeks have been a marathon, haven't they? You've been running up to Katowice, Poland, and the energy news has been dominated by the goings-on there of the COP talks, which have been taking place there. Now, interestingly enough, these were in the heart of coal country in Katowice, Poland. Why do you think that is? Well, we know everybody about the issue of Poland with the coal. The, uh, a lot of electricity produced from coal and uh, a lot of people employed in this industry. I think that the Polish government understands the challenge here and they understand that they need to do something with that. But on the other side, I do understand as well that it's not so easy because it's a really a social problem. A lot of people involved in this business and a lot of people employed. And therefore, they are looking for different answers and different solutions. And I think electric mobility is one of them. And that's as well probably one of the reasons why they are supporting the development of electric mobility so heavily. And uh, that's good. Yeah, I mean, it seems like an interesting choice, but obviously one that they were trying to make a state with with as well. So I've called it the COP. Uh, We've said COP a lot in the last few weeks, but not everyone might know what that is. It stands for the Conference of Parties, and this year's meeting was the 24th Conference of Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So this is a gathering every year of all the different representatives from the signatory countries to come and talk about the Climate Change Convention, which was signed originally in 1992. At this point, those signatories can almost every single country in the world. Famously, COP21 in Paris in 2015 led to the famous Paris Agreement, which for the first time brought all the signatory countries together to undertake ambitious efforts in order to keep global temperatures from rising no more than two degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels and ideally within 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, we've recently got a very scary report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change saying we are not on track to do this and we can be very pessimistic and concerned about everything going on, or we can try to take a more positive and optimistic spin on the things that we can still try to do in order to keep global temperatures from rising too much. So there was a lot of activities going on up in Katowice in the last few weeks. And you know, on one hand, you have the main events, which was the meetings of the country representatives and the official observers and the activists, like uh, most notably to me was the young Swedish girl, Greta Thornberg, who really laid into the delegates there about the abdication of responsibility and countries not doing enough. I found that to be very powerful, especially as I have a two-week-old child um, who's going to look at me and maybe ask those same mm-hmm. questions, understandably so. But you were there participating in a number of side events. What does that mean? And what did you do there? Except of uh, many business meetings I had uh, in uh, COP24, I think uh, very interesting was the panel organized by Euroelectric. Euroelectric just recently issued a report saying what needs to be done in order to tackle the global warming and make a CO2 reduction. And basically, big answer is electrification of everything, electrification of transportation, of industry, of buildings. So many things which we are now doing with the fossil fuels, like uh, heating, for example, could be done with electricity, which could be produced from renewable sources. So we were 
were debating how to do it, especially in a transportation business. And this discussion was very interesting, and I think it was all around the COP24. You know, if I compare it to the Paris back in 2015, there was a declaration that we need to do something, and there was a, I call it end of denying, but basically everybody understood that this is a problem and we need to solve them. And what changed in this, let's say, three years was a very significant evolution of the technology. So we, uh, in the three years, we saw a very interesting development in uh, battery storage. We saw the uh, very interesting development in uh, electric vehicles. The prices of uh, electricity produced from renewables dropped dramatically within these three years as well. Basically, now uh, it's absolutely clear that electricity produced from renewables is the cheapest source of electricity ever. Almost all new added capacity into the grid are renewables globally. So we saw that basically this vision from Paris is now supported heavily by technology and the technology plays a big role in achieving the uh, global warming target. Yeah, that's certainly true. We see that all the time in our work. And there was an interesting article from... Michael Leibrich. No, there was well, that was an interesting article from Leibrich as well. But there was also an interesting article from James Murray at Business Green. And he wrote sort of the optimist's take on what happened at Katowice, that countries of the world and many governments finally started setting not just aspirational standards and saying no more denial, but rather saying that here's actually the things that we can do. And especially important that he wrote was that businesses now are really taking the cue that there's no going back anymore, that even the oil majors are starting to really invest in whether it's in electric vehicle companies or new energy technologies or how to onboard renewables into the grid, that they're all starting to shift away and certainly plan for, even if it's much long-term business cycles and longer-term investments, for a much, much, much lower carbon-based future. So there's that direction that seems to be coming out of Katowice as well. Yes, that's true. And another interesting debate we have next is development of technology as, as well about the regulation and uh, I said in one discussion in COP that Europe is very good in terms of the policies and we have a very nice vision and, you know, politics talks about it being leaders in uh, green technologies, in renewables and everything, which is absolutely great. But what we are failing quite a lot is the regulation itself. So how to bring this vision into the real world? You know, the famous Dieselgate was only a top of the iceberg, actually, that the fact that someone manipulated the software was only really the last things which they did. And uh, what we need to work is how to make this political vision into the real world. And I think the regulation and regulators and proper regulation, which goes in line with our rules, is an important part of it. So we had one example of that already even last night, didn't we, here at the European level? The so-called Trilog, the European Commission, the Parliament, and the Council of Ministers represented by Austria finally agreed on new legislation regarding vehicle emissions and CO2 standards. Do you want to talk about that briefly? Yes, sure. I think we talked about it in uh, our previous podcast about the new regulation, and uh, now it's eventually happening. Now the agreement is on the table. I think it's a kind of a compromise. The agreement is quite ambitious. What I'm still missing there is some kind of punishment where car producer would be punished for not producing sufficient amount of uh, pure electric vehicles. I think that was a very big part of the proposition from the European Parliament, which would give uh, quite a lot of stability into the all electric mobility ecosystem, because then we can count really on what is going to be the number of electric vehicles in the roads in the next few years. This is a little bit missing in the final agreement. But if we will stick to the regulation, if the regulators will stick to the rules and hold companies accountable to the rules, I think we can uh, get a good result. 
Yeah, because the actual climate targets that they agreed in the negotiation were pretty substantial. It's holding emissions to 37.5% of 2021 levels by 2030. So that's a pretty impressive target. But of course, like you said, they can try to meet that target in different ways. It's not necessarily just in the deployment of electric vehicles to the roads and to the dealers. Now, in conjunction with that, they also agreed to a tighter set of testing regimes. So now they'll have to use both real-world testing as well as the WLRTP standard in order to test the real emissions of vehicles, not just something done in a lab that might be very, very different from the actual emissions of those vehicles. Hopefully those two elements together will ultimately result in a lot more clean and low emissions vehicles on the roads. Certainly what we hope. Given all the rhetoric out of cup, it would be crazy if that was not the case, because obviously a lot of powerful rhetoric and statements were made. And the real question is what actually gets done in implementation. But it's not just countries and governments and politicians who do all the things. I mean, you're a businessman, you're an entrepreneur, you're on your second clean tech company already. So regardless of what happens at the political and governmental levels, seems business is really driving a lot of these changes. You know, you have Tesla in the United States as just one iconic example, regardless of what the president of the United States says. And it seems to me that you met a lot of counterparts at COP who are also working to push the needle, regardless of what's happening at the policy levels. Yes, indeed. Uh, it is uh, definitely a lot of things happening. In the uh, case of electromobility, we still used to say that we very much depends on the car manufacturers because this is a kind of a bottleneck in this respect. So if you look on the electrification of the buildings or industries, you have many parties to deal with and you can convince this company to change another company and so on and so forth. So they have thousands of counterparties. In case of electric vehicles, there are maybe six or seven relevant companies in the world, which is relevant. I'm not counting on the Tesla, actually, that's a different story. And uh, they are in a position to somehow moderate um, all this transition. So I think that their role in this is extremely important. On the other side, we see all other businesses being able to jump into the electromobility ecosystem, shall it be you know, IT system, shall it be the uh, infrastructure and many other things. Batteries are very important as well. There was a lot of talks on the COP about the batteries, especially about the need to build the battery technologies in um, Europe. So all these things are evolving. I think it goes hand in hand with improvement of technology and we are moving in a good direction. We just need to recognize that. We will need something that takes the CO2 away so now, over the course of the rest of this episode, we're going to play you some clips from the COP itself. Now, the recording quality here is a little less optimal than what we have in the studio. But we felt it was really important to give you the voices of some of the speakers at the COP and sacrifice a little bit of the sound quality in order to get their voices into the podcast. So... You were on a panel, as you said, sponsored by Euroelectric, the Energy Sector Association for Electric Companies in Europe. And I want to let listeners in on some of the debate about that panel. So you just brought up energy. And now here is Peter Carlson, the CEO of Northvolt, talking about the amount of electricity that would be needed for the real electric transition. The snowball has already started rolling. So the lead times in the auto industry are long. But pretty much everyone is now kind of revamping their lineups. And you will start seeing the effects of that with fully electrified lineup of products between 2020 and 2024. So that's, that's really when, when you really will start seeing uh, a lot of products being uh, available. And that's also when we see a tremendous hockey stick of demand going up. We estimate that 
Europe in seven years will, on its own, need to support the auto industry, will need roughly 200 uh, gigawatt hours of, of battery capacity, which equals to six of these uh, factories that we are building. And as a reference point, you know, the European car industry is roughly 20 million vehicles a year. So, in order to fully transform uh, into electrification, we would need somewhere around 40 of these factories in Europe to drive this transformation. Obviously, this is an immense investment, but it's also a great opportunity for driving economic activity, driving new jobs, and driving new technology in this region. That is an incredible amount of energy needed, but of course, if we're going to electrify all of Europe, it's going to take an incredible amount of energy. You know, Peter, do you want to comment on that? Well, in terms of the energy, if we switch the whole fleet of all vehicles which we have in Europe, we will need 30% more electric energy to be produced. So it's actually not a huge number in terms of the time horizon which we are talking about, because definitely to switch the whole fleet will take a many, many years. And what is definitely a different story is a local capacity available on different spots and how this capacity could be managed. But here, the electric vehicles could actually act as a kind of a balancing. So what we see in the future is the electric vehicles providing the flexibility to the grid. So actually, if you think about the electric vehicles as a huge battery, and this is going to be a very, very huge battery, distributed but very huge, it's something which could actually bring so much flexibility into the grid that we are able to add additional renewables. So it goes in a certain circle. Without electric vehicles, we are actually not able to reach 100% decarbonization production of electricity. It has to go in hand in hand. And can you explain how exactly the role of electric vehicles, the onboard batteries and the charging infrastructure works to serve as a bridge between the grid and, and more flexible uses and storage of energy? Yes. As I said, the electric vehicles will be a huge distributed battery storage. It will be able to be charged when this blowing or shine is shining and we are able to discharge to the grid or when it's not happening so. But you need a very intelligent interconnection between the energy system, so between the solar modules and all the power plants into the system and this huge electric battery. And that's basically the charging infrastructure. So therefore, companies like Greenway are or will have to act as a kind of a bridge between the energy system and the electric vehicles. And they will serve not only the purpose of uh, charging for driving and moving the electric vehicles, but as well serve the purpose of bringing this flexibility into the batteries of electric cars into the energy system. And they can probably move the energy around so that it's actually stored in different places as the vehicle moves and still has power left in its battery. Yes, that's another dimension. So you have a time dimension, you can switch the demand or you can even supply some electricity into the grid and you have a dimension of the place where you can move the electricity. Mm -hmm. Another part of this debate was about the economic development benefits that come from the whole electrification industry. You know, there's a lot of debate right now about what this transition would look like, jobs that are lost in the you know combustion engine car industry, things like the societal impacts. At the same time, there seems like there's a lot of industries that would be opened up by electrification. So let's listen to Christoph Ballesta, who is the vice president of the Electric Vehicles Promotion Foundation, what he said on that panel. If we apply the scenario the Polish government is pushing, so one million cars to 2025, in 2030, that move will cut the oil bill by 30%. So you have 4 billion euro in your budget, extra. Second, electric cars will bring new jobs. According to our studies, 50,000 by 2030. 
because the money saved on oil will be spent elsewhere. So cinemas, food, basic stuff, but also investment in immobility. So this will create jobs in the Polish economy. Electric cars need uh, infrastructure. And we calculated that one million cars will need probably one million points. Be it uh, public charges, but also home charging. And this one million charging points will need investment of about uh, 2.6 billion euros. That's our calculation. Of course, there's some challenges. In some sectors, jobs will be lost, and that's the traditional automotive sector. But this could be offset by the new innovative jobs in, uh, say, power-to-grid solutions, in the batteries production, in charging infrastructure. So I think overall, the picture is positive. And there's a lot of jobs to be created, it would seem. I mean, here you need to upgrade the grid so it can handle more capacity because now electricity is going to be needed everywhere. You're going to need to extend the grid so electricity is available in many, many new places. I mean, these are basic construction jobs, diggers, trenchers, people who are making and hauling cement, people who are building the cushioning and the insulation to keep the cables insulated. These are people driving the trucks to bring the materials. So, I mean, a lot of it is basic construction jobs that anyone can do. It's not just software jobs or coding. But then you have all of the electricians that are going to be needed. Then you have all of the IT people who are needed in order to write the code for the software to get the energy flowing to the right places and have it all be smart. Um, and then, of course, you have people manufacturing the cars, manufacturing the charging infrastructure, manufacturing and doing R&D on the batteries. Are there others? Yes, you mentioned that. You have uh, electromobility, batteries. We said that electric vehicles are very much linked to the emergence of the really huge amount of the renewables in the sources. So we said that we need electric vehicles to have really a lot of renewables into the source. And actually the renewables or renewable energy and technology around that is already employing a lot of people. If we want to switch really for fully decarbonized electricity production, it's going to be a huge endeavor. And here, electromobility plays an important role. So I see that if you and if you lose some jobs immediately, maybe in some uh, car production, there is going to be many, many other jobs creating by the whole transition from the current uh, energy and automotive business into the completely new one. Another th important thing is just to be very honest, if we move something from less efficient to more efficient, there is a transformation. And, but this transformation is inevitable. I think there's a history of whole civilization that we are moving from something which is less energy efficient to something which is more. And you cannot stop that. You can only choose to be on the right side and benefit from it, or you can be on the bad side and just get uh, the bad results out of it. We saw it many, many times uh, through the history so fighting against it, which we really very short-sighted. Another thing, another angle I, I'm looking on the development and why I'm pushing for quick introduction of electric vehicles and fuel electric vehicles is as well that I see the whole picture and not only about Europe or what we do here now in our, let's say, called the rich countries, but what's happening as well in the, in the rest of the world. And basically billions of people are, are living in a much uh, worse conditions than we do in terms of the environment as well. And uh, if we have the capabilities as a, a nation which has a technology resources, financial resources, to develop certain technology, we should do so because then it's spread all around the world. 
If you look on SAR modules, for example, it was developed in Europe, then it was, was scaled up in China. But now one of the biggest beneficiaries of this are countries where they are able to produce very cheap electricity with a solar. So basically the biggest aid which we could give them was not actually the money which we sent to Africa, but now it's a technology which they can use to have a very cheap source of electricity. And I see the same in uh, electric vehicles. If we are now producing the what we call the clean diesel, which uh, fulfills all the criteria. And it may be very clean at the very beginning when you buy it in uh, someone in Berlin from a showroom. That's very nice. But after four or five years, all this complicated system stop work and the vehicle will probably will be sold first to the Eastern Europe and then maybe somewhere to Africa or uh, Middle East. And I'm pretty sure that all these complicated gadgets which make it now clean, which make it Euro 6 at the moment, will not work in four or five years. But the vehicle will not disappear. In 10 years, it will be driving down in Africa or in the Middle East. So it will be again a dirt diesel after a while. While if we look on electric vehicles, the production of the electricity is uh, getting cleaner and cleaner. So during the lifetime of the particle vehicle, which could be easily 15 years, the battery electric vehicle will only improve in terms of the CO2 footprint and in terms of the overall emission, while this kind of a traditional diesel or gasoline car will only get worse and worse. And software can also be updated in the car to provide other improvements, maybe safety, maybe you know autonomy. And then the battery can probably be switched out as well. That battery can be used for something else, it's a second life battery. It will definitely will. And, and uh, again, if you look on the expected uh, amount of batteries we are going into the electric vehicles and they will be then replaced and they will be put as a kind of energy storage is again another big part of the whole equation where batteries are flowing from the electric vehicles into the stationary energy storage supporting the renewables. So all these things fits together and works together. Of course, a lot of what we're talking about is a world in which there's already a lot of electric vehicles on the roads, not the still less than 1% penetration that we're seeing right now. And so I know you talked about how do we actually get to that point? Where do we need to install charging infrastructure so that people are more comfortable driving electric, uh, more comfortable knowing where their next charging session is going to be, and uh, you know, really work it into their regular daily lifestyles? So here's Diego Pavia, the CEO of Inno Energy, on that point. How can we make sure that every time we refurbish a building, at least then we make sure that there is an electric charging point in because that exactly gives you that flexibility. People talk about range anxiety, but people also have the anxiety to not know whether or not there is a possibility to charge their car wherever they're going. So take this away. We need to make sure that when we renovate buildings, we need to have give people the chance to at least have the infrastructure in the building ready. Maybe not even the charger, but to have everything set up so that the charger just doesn't just has to be brought in and plugged in and you don't even drill open the walls and dig through the, the entire earth and all of that. And that also helps people to become less anxious about taking on an electric vehicle. And it has to be done with regulation. I mean, this is a really important point, Peter, right? I know we've talked about this quite a bit, especially where there are multifamily apartment buildings and people don't have a private garage. How can they install a charger near their home? I mean, Amsterdam has a wonderful program where they will install an AC charger for you on the street, but that's you know unique to Amsterdam. It's not so commonly available everywhere. So one, as we look at new construction buildings or as we look at buildings that are being renovated and thinking about the electric vehicle 
charging culture that we need to start building and instilling and really making popular and much more widespread. If the wiring is already there, if the regulations are in place, making that legal, if the building governing board has already been told that this is something that needs to happen, all that the homeowner or the tenant needs to do is come in and bring their own charging box. That is suddenly makes it a lot, lot easier for them to conceive of going electric. And when I say them, I'm really thinking of my own mother-in-law here. I think one of her biggest anxieties is she doesn't know where she would charge next. And if she is able to have a wall box in her basement of her apartment, that would go a long, long way towards addressing that issue and then making many more people more comfortable buying electric vehicles. So, Peter, it seems to me that there's at least three different levels that we can look at what's going on in the world and how we're addressing and responding to the challenge of climate change. There is the personal, individual, family level. What are I doing in my personal life in order to try to minimize my carbon footprint? There's the level of businesses and what businesses are doing in order to try to drive a cleaner future, reduce their carbon footprint. And then there's the statements and actions made by governments, creating enabling environments for businesses and for people, and also trying to regulate some of the most harmful practices that are carbon intensive. You learned a lot at COP. Thank you very, very much for sharing your experiences and representing Greenway there so well. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Well, everyone, thank you for listening. We hope this show was interesting to you. Next year's COP is going to be in Chile, I think, and the, I know the United Kingdom is bidding for the one after that. These are going to be very significant conferences in terms of charting the future course of the planet in terms of carbon and climate change. Please let us know what you thought of this episode. You can reach us at my email, aaron.fishbone at greenwaynetwork.com. Tweet at us at gwoperator.com or visit us on Facebook or on our website. And feel free to share the episode with your friends. We definitely want to help generate a community of people who are active on these issues, aware of them, and participating in the discussion. Thanks very much for your perspectives, Peter. Thank you very much. And thank you very much to our wonderful producer, Katarina Urban-Richterova, without whom we would not be able to produce these episodes. Thanks to the production team here at the recording studio. And everyone, we wish you many safe electric kilometers. 